So uh, this is uh, Vandal 12A. I'm your host. Um, welcome to the Station House Podcast. I have a very special guest today. Um, he's a comedian. He's an actor. He has his own cooking show. He's also a volunteer police sergeant. Uh, welcome, Jesse. How you doing? Uh, how you doing? I'm welcome. good. Um, how <laughs> good you been to be today? Here. I've been good. I've been uh, just home resting. I didn't do any cooking today because my my other half is on uh, actually we're on vacation. Well, we went to see some wrestling at uh, in Canada. So he's a actually sent me some pictures of Niagara Falls. That's where he was today. So. I'm actually a, a big fan of your uh, your cooking show. I watch it every day. Oh, thank <laughs> Especially you, thank your uh, lasagna one. No, no, um, oh. your um, what's that cake you make? Um, the flung, the flung one. Oh, the flung. Oh, yeah, yeah. I haven't done one in a while. I gotta cook. I gotta get one done. It's got a lot of sugar, you know. No good for you. I know. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about. Uh, so tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, how many years you've been in the volunteer police? As a volunteer, I've been doing officer. I've been doing volunteer police for thirty one years. Thirty one years. years, more than I've been alive. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, how 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 long you been a, a sergeant as well? I lost track of that. Uh, I've I've been a sergeant for what maybe uh, about fifteen years, I would say, give or take. Fifteen yeah. years, wow. So, and I'm hoping um, to, I'm hoping to get promoted to lieutenant, but you know, there's a tie up now, but we'll see how that works. Oh man. So for those of you that, that don't know, I, I was actually a volunteer police uh for probably like eight years. Uh and uh Jesse was my supervisor uh in the as a volunteer police. So I have I have a lot of good memories with him. Uh he's a great sergeant, he's a very actually good comedian. Uh, it makes all of us laugh. So let's let's see. Um, so let's start off by: um, Do you have any stories on, uh, like, any situations that, like, any dangerous situations when, you know, when you were a uh, well, are a, a volunteer police? Like, what, like, like, any dangerous situations that you've been a part of? I mean, I've been involved in so many. I've been involved in so many things, but one that comes to memory, and it's it's kind of a bad memory, but it's I guess I'm traumatized. Uh, one of the first things that happened when I was in, when I started as an auxiliary, um, uh, this guy was was on the subway. The train was elevated, and this guy was going from one train car to the other, and he was he had a few drinks, and he fell in between, and four of those subway cars ran over him. And, you know, uh, I was like one of the first responders there. We had to stop traffic. Uh, it, it was a, it was quite a scene. And it was, I mean, I was a rookie. And to see this for the first time was crazy. And it's always been in my head. And every time I get in the subway and I see somebody crossing through those doors, it, it, it like, it, it, I get a flashback because I go, oh, my God, the, the people don't realize how dangerous. You lose your balance. You fall between these two, these, these car, subway cars, and you're done. You're done. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. Um, I do have a story about like something similar to that, that happened to me. Uh, when I was in a, a volunteer police in the same precinct as you, I, I don't know if you remember the situation where um, I was a field training officer right that day, FTO, and I was training 
um, these five rookies and um, I was taking them on the train to switch posts to Parkchester. And, and I don't know if you remember, but, uh, but there was the this guy the, guy. the guy who fell into the plat into the tracks. No. So um, he was in the, we, we went upstairs by the platform. And there was this Mexican guy. He was like, hey, you know, um, could, could you call a, a bus for me? So I said, okay. So I turned around. Well, he said an ambulance. Like he, didn't say, he didn't say a bus, right? Well, no, no. He, he can ambulance. So, so um, Nobody knows what a bus and, is. Uh, yeah. So uh, pretty much a bus is called, a code name for, for an ambulance. So he so he asked to uh, to get help. So I turned around, and I'm training the rookies how to go on the, on the police radio. And that was the biggest mistake. So when I turned around and I was training these rookies, he says, no, I, I, like, I want to die today. So when I turned around, he tried to push us in the tracks while the train was coming full force. And I managed to grab him in a, in a headlock and I pushed myself back. So he fell on top of me and all, and all the other guys fell on, like pretty much they all fell on top of me. So we didn't fall in the tracks. We just fell in the concrete and the platform. So we're there fighting with the guy because, you know, I'm freaking out, whatever. And I managed to get my radio and I actually called for an 85. An 85 is like you calling for help, for assistance, like, you know, cop down, whatever. And the CEO of the precinct at the time came rushing. It was like a big scene. So by the time they got there, um, the guy had like a bloody nose. He was all beat up. And the CEO was hey, like, who called an 85? Happens. It happens. Huh? It happens. Yeah. So he, he said, who called an 85? I said, um, yes, sir, I did. And he was like, it was a funny story. He was like, you called an 85 for this? You beat the fuck out of this guy. But you know what? Good job, kid. You know, so they so they kind of understood, like, why we took that measure. Because, you know, first things first, we're kids. You know, like most um, auxiliaries, most of them are, are young kids, you know, to begin with, volunteer cops. So, um, you know, you're pretty much learning as you go. So. That was one of those things where I could have lost my life and all of us yeah. by that moving train. So um, the guy, I think, ended up getting nothing. Like he, like they collared him, they arrested him, but he ended up coming out. Lucky I, I saw was him like lucky I wasn't huh? there. Lucky I wasn't there. I saw I him like two weeks camp. later in the same platform. I don't go for that nonsense. I would have taken care of him. Unbelievable! But that's one of the stories. Uh, one of the many stories I have uh, in there. Um, so let's see. So after all these years, you've been in well, thirty-one years. What keeps you going? What makes you want to continue volunteering? Because that's that's a lot of that's that's a very strong commitment. It is, and it was. A it, lot it is a me. strong commitment. I mean, it. it um, I I like getting involved. I like uh, helping out people, and I always like to do the right thing. You know, I I was. Like I say, do the right thing, you know, and when I see something that's not right and somebody doing something that's not right, I have to be nosy and get my foot into it, basically. But that's what it is. It's all about, you know, putting your, you know, putting an input. I, I don't like people getting abused. I don't like see, or senior citizens getting abused. I just don't like people doing the wrong thing. And that's what keeps me going. And, I, you know, like I said, basically, I like to help out. And if I see something that's not right, I jump in. Uh, the other day, I was in the subway station. People think I'm crazy. But I was, I was in the train station. I was going to go buy. I was going to Dunkin' Donuts. And here I am. I'm working on my regular job. I have nothing to do with this train station. And I'm going to go buy donuts at the train station. And 
there's a bunch, there's a tour guide with about 50 kids from Italy. Hey, so they're sitting in the, in, in the steps and there's no way to go down to the train station. You know, like this is, I'm from the department, I call myself from the Department of Common Sense. Come on, hey. So they're sitting there on these steps and I got pictures. I got pictures. I'll show you the pictures one day. And you couldn't walk down. So I went over to the token booth and I, there was a lady in the booth. I call it token booth. That shows my age. They don't sell tokens anymore. But it, the, the clerk in the booth, or whatever you want to call it. So I went there and I'm telling her, as I'm telling her, she's talking to the lady in charge of the group, telling them, listen, you, you know, you got to get these kids out of here. So I jumped in, of course, me. And I said, listen, miss, I am in charge of this building. I am the superintendent of this whole building where this train station is. And you got to get these kids out of the way. Well, she got them out of the way. So that's why I get myself sometimes in trouble because I get involved in things that I should. But that I felt that I had to put my two cents in it. And it's true. You, you, you got to let people walk up and down. And the lady at the, the clerk was telling them, listen, you got to let you got to get these kids move out of the way because people have to. It's a tripping hazard. So that's what I do. I get involved in stuff, you know, like that. As you should. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's only common sense. Common sense. You, you, you're blocking. If you're sitting there in the steps and you see people walking around you, then obviously you're in the way. So that's true. They, call me, they call me crazy. Uh, so, that's what I um, so, all right. So let's talk about, um, so what's different from when you started as a volunteer police 31 years ago to now? Like, what is the big difference? Like, what changed, um, especially like in the streets out there? Like, uh, first and first, let, let's start off by saying, how was it 31 years ago? Because there's a lot of documentaries out there, like the 7-5, um, like, you know, um, how, uh, all those cops would, um, would talk about how dangerous it was back in the days. How was it for volunteer cops back in the days? I mean, 31 years ago, I mean, well, cause I remember thing... cause back in the days, um, well, correct, correct me if I'm wrong. You guys didn't have police vests until those two, um, volunteer cops died. In 2007, that, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So 31 years ago, we, um, our uniforms were basically the same. We had we wore the same uniform as the police. We had that baby blue shirt, whatever the hell that color was, and uh, but it was a little bit disorganized. And and the, the uh, a lot of the cops didn't recognize the auxiliaries. You know, they just didn't know what auxiliaries were about. Um, the whole department itself just uh, just had the auxiliaries there because they had to, because it's mandated. It's a, it's a law, state law that. Every state has to mandate some kind of auxiliary force. So, you know, we were there because we were there. Um, but the changes now, well, I've, of course, like you mentioned with the uh, the, uh, the, bull the bulletproof vest, unfortunately, I was on patrol that night when that happened. Um, you know, that happened in the village in Manhattan, but I was in the Bronx, but I heard on the radio what was going on. So, so how um, was that night, like, was like, like, when you heard it, it, it was crazy. I remember radio. like it was yesterday. I was on a subway. Actually, I was in Parkchester and I was on with my, my uh, partner who passed away. And um, we heard something on the radio in the citywide band about, you know, two officers down and blah, 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 and whatever it was. And at first they actually thought it was two uh, regular officers that were down. And by the time I, I got to the priest and then drove all the way back then. I used to live in Manhattan, which I still do. But uh, when I got to my parents' house, actually, I lived with my parents back then. By that time I got home, it was in the news and it was they were announcing there was two auxiliary officers that had got shot in the village in the 6th precinct. So unfortunately, after that, uh, all auxiliaries were given um, 
you know, issue bulletproof vests. And actually, uh, I've gotten, I've gotten my, I'm, I'm working on my second vest because they, they actually, those vests don't last that long, and you have to, you know, uh, change them every so, every so often, whatever it is. But that's one of the things that came out, and and now the police department really respects auxiliaries, and they realize that we, uh, we, we, we're needed. You know, we're needed for the small things that, the, that there's not enough police officers. Exactly. Actually, after the pandemic. You know, a lot of cops retired, and we we now taking up the slack. We out there in, in street fairs, we're directing traffic. We've been we uh, we go to different training. We get CPR training, which didn't happen back then. Uh, so many things are involved, and the bosses, the police bosses, now really want the auxiliaries. They love the auxiliaries. They want the auxiliaries. They demand more from us. So we're we're up there. We're up there, and the cops. We have a great relationship with the cops, and uh, you know they. We, you know, we get equipment, we have more better equipment, uh, better training, and it, it's going to get better, I think. It really is. So, yeah. So it has changed, of course. 31 years changes a lot of things. Yep. Well, yeah, when uh, when I was there, like when I first started, I remember, um, I'm not going to say the precinct that we that we did it, um, you know, auxiliary, but uh, when I was there, um, in the beginning – the cops didn't really kind of respect us a little. Like, like you had a few pockets of, like, groups of cops that respect us. Others don't. But uh, I remember in that precinct, this encounter changed the way they looked at us. Well, from my uh, perspective, because everybody had a different perspective. But I remember, I think you were there, actually. Um, we were going to a funeral detail. I think uh, one of the cops' families died or something like that, and then we had to go show support. And on our way over there, um, there was a a cop outside, under, like like he was under the train. And I don't know what happened, but we happened to caught him getting hit with like with like a with like a steel chair, like uh like 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 under the train. I'm not sure if 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 you recall that day, but um. Uh, our coordinator at the time um, turned the car over and we all ran outside and we actually um, 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 grabbed the perps and everything and they called an 85 and stuff like that. And that was the one time where everything started to change. Like from my perspective where those cops that didn't like auxiliaries, they were like, they were like okay, you know what? Like these guys have our backs. And we actually, um, not saying that we saved the cop's life because, but we ended up making sure that he didn't get no extra damage because he got hit really hard in the face with with the uh, with the um, chair. So that was that was one of the issues. You know, it, it takes a lot. It, 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 it takes a lot for a person to put on a, a uniform that you look exactly like a cop and you don't have a gun. So they have to give us that kind of respect, and people have to admire what we do. There's not too many people who will put on a police uniform and go and walk the streets without a gun. You gotta face it. So it's a special person that really takes a special type of person that does this. And you know, the police have, re have realized that, and the bosses have realized that, and the citizens of New York have realized that that we're out there with only a nightstick as a weapon, and we're taking a chance. We're a target because when people look at a police uniform, they don't look to see if the guy's carrying a gun in his waist. He's you know somebody who's out to get a cop is out to get a cop, and he just looks at the uniform. So it takes a lot. It takes a special human being to do uh, what we, what I do, what you did. Uh, it does. It really does. I loved every bit of it. Um, 
I've gotten into like like I remember like like all right, so it, it all right so look this is one of the situations that I got myself into off duty that was probably one of the most one of the most dangerous situations I've been a part of as a auxiliary but even though I was off duty but I had to kind of um like step in and and show my show my shield and ID so I was on the train heading home from back in the days I was a secu- I was a security guard and I was I was in 125th Street train station and I'm hearing on the on the speaker we need a police officer in the front of the train they kept they kept saying they kept saying it so I'm looking around and I'm like you know wh- you know where's the cops so I said you know what let me go let me go check it out if it's not too dangerous I'm going to intervene so I, I so so as I'm going as I'm walking to the middle of the uh of the platform um there was this girl and she was stabbing this guy like we were like we like these two little knives she stabbed him like at least four or five times in the chest and then he collapsed and then she runs up to the to the second platform he gets up and he chases her to the second platform and I'm like oh my god you know there's blood everywhere so I'm so I ran after them went to the second platform this is like a movie she stabs him again like three or four times with the, with like with like just two little like knives it was like they're very small and he's holding his chest and she runs to the last platform and I'm like you know what I have to catch this girl you know she's just probably you know probably committed murder you know so he gets up after I, thought, after I thought he was dead he chases her to the last platform and I'm like you know so as I'm running chasing after them I saw this off-duty cop he takes his gun out he's pointing it at her to drop the knife drop the knife and this is when I said you know what I have to jump in now so in front of the gun huh you thought you jumped in front of the gun no 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 he was okay. a off-duty cop. He he presented himself oh, yeah, as a, I mean, a cop. I hope so. I mean, you know. <laughs> so so I, I so I ran over there, and there was a lot of gang members surrounding the cop, and they were trying to hit him. They were like, you know, like making a ride. So I told the guy, "Listen, I'm an off-duty um, auxiliary. Um, I got your back, uh, you know." And I, and I kept saying, "Do you need my help?" And he was like, "Okay, yes, I do. I do." So me and him went back to back. It was like a movie. We we went back to back. That sounds back like a movie. We were touching each other. He was he was pointing a gun at the female, and I was trying to make sure that the that those guys don't hit him. I'm not sure. Sure, somebody called nine one one and they said a cop got stabbed in the neck. You know, some some crazy thing. Cops started running from every direction. Um, they pointed the gun at us because they uh, saw his gun. We all went on the floor. Then I pres- then I told him that I was a volunteer cop, whatever, and I told him what happened, and you know they told me to get up, whatever, and to find out that that the off-duty cop was a um, what was it? he wasn't NYPD, he was um, State Park Police, I think it was, and they ended up taking my my ID information and they're quoting my coordinator and and you know and and they were happy about about what I did, but they were also concerned because, you know, I could have got killed in that situation. But I, but I was very young. Yeah, I was yeah. probably like three years. Yeah, you have to, in a situation like that, you have to really ascertain the situation. You have to look and make sure that your safety is first uh, before you 
try to save somebody else because it's it's you first. If you can't save yourself, then you can't save others. So you have to make sure that you you you're in a safe situation. So yeah, and the reason why I joined auxiliary is because of those two auxiliaries that died in uh, 2007. Uh, later on, when it hit like 2010, 2011, uh, I you know I started searching up what was auxiliary, and then I ended up seeing those. I don't know. Is it something about um, what happened to them? Kind of encouraged me to 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 actually join the department even more. I don't that's know, another, seeing that's them, a, that, it, you know, that's another thing with me. I mean, I live in Manhattan most of my life. I lived in Jersey for a while and Brooklyn, but I live in Manhattan. I'm a Manhattan boy, and uh, I've devoted 31 years to the Bronx. So that 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 uh, speaks, you know, speaks a lot that I serve the community of the Bronx that I don't even live in. So uh, and I chose that precinct because uh, I had some friends, I some coworkers that got me involved in the program. And they asked, well, I don't live in, a, you know, I, I don't live in the Bronx. And they said, yeah, but just, and I was kind of shy to get into this program. So I said, so they told me, well, you you take the classes with us and we all take the class together, whatever it is. And then you can transfer to your your local precinct. Well, 31 years later, I'm still in the Bronx. So short story. Yeah. So, so the people in the Bronx should, uh, should clap for me because I, 31 years. And counting. Yeah. And I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wait. To, I'm gonna probably make lieutenant hopefully soon, and then uh, maybe after that I'll retire. I'll retire as a lieutenant, but you know, I'll keep going. How many and years you you have in you? In what? In how like how many more years you have in it? Like to be um, a volunteer police? Like like how many more years you you think that like, you have left? Well, I'm, I'm, I, I I I want to be there until uh, until I can do it no more. I mean, not only not only uh, it's about it's not only about the police, you know, the the what we go through and we do, but it also helps. It's a therapy. It's a therapy because I go there sometimes. I'm pissed off. Sometimes I'm down. Sometimes, and we're like family, especially in that, in that precinct. So we go there, we joke around, and you know, we pass the time. A lot of the older auxiliaries that don't even go out anymore. That's what they do. They sit in the office, drink coffee. You know who they are, but uh. Uh, it, that, it gives them something to do. It gives them something to do, and, and that's and I like that. It's, it's part of family. We we do picnics. We you know we we go do a party at Christmas and all that stuff. So it's all it's not only all the time doing police work. It's also it's like you know it's a it's like a group. It's like a club, you know. And you go there and you and you talk to people and, and the change of scenery. So that's one of the reasons I I think I keep going because it keeps me sane. It gives me something to do. And as long as I can do it, I'll do it. You know, right now, I, I mean, I can hardly walk. And I'm still out there in uniform. I can't run anymore. So, if, you know, criminals, uh, I'll chase the, I'll, I'll let the rookies chase them. I'll, I'll show up sometime, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that was good. So, um, all right. So, let's switch up a bit. So, so let's, all right. So, so what made you want to be a comedian? Because... For the ten year, for the what thirteen well, <laughs> years I've known you. Well, I don't. You, I don't uh, think anybody. I don't think anybody wakes up one day and says, "You know, what? I'm going to be a comedian." I don't think it's one of those things. I think you're born with it. Uh, it, it to me, it runs in the family. My father's funny. My um, I have a late uncle who's hilarious. Uh, I think it runs in the family via humor. And I I've always been like the class clown, and it got me in trouble, of course. But I've always been. Uh, I've always make like to make people laugh, and I was had I was saying. Uh, that I would, I told people, if I can make one person in the world 
our each day laugh, my job here on earth has been done. You know what I mean? I like to make people laugh. Even sometimes I'm down, you know, I suffer from depression. I suffer, you know, but there's times I make people laugh. I make people laugh. And that gives me energy. And, you know, I yeah, do it on Facebook. I, I do it on work. Lowest, when I was on my lowest point, you were actually there for me. And you made my auxiliary, uh, um, the remaining years that I, w I, was a, I was an auxiliary before I became a full-time police officer, you made it memorable because there'll be times where it's like, it's like you said, like there'll be times where I'll be down and I just go to the program and it's like a family. So, you know, yeah. you guys always uh, pick me up when I was uh, down and out. So uh, auxiliary will always be like a part of me, like no matter where I go, because that's where I learned policing. Like, all, all, like, you know, where else can you get um, uh, all this experience pretty much starting as a kid, you know, I mean, all I, the way up, you know, I, I feel, you know, I'm, I've been a sergeant for a long time. And by now with, all, with 31 years, I should be like auxiliary commissioner. But you know, <laughs> what I've, what I feel, what I get pride, what I get uh, joy out of is seeing people join the auxiliary, go through the program and become either cops or go up in the ranks. The deputy inspector Garcia, who, who retired about a year ago, I fingerprinted the guy. He came in after I did, and I fingerprinted the guy. And the guy ended up to be retiring as a, a, a deputy inspector. And like I told my coordinator, that gives me pride that I take people and I train them and I shove them off like a parent. You know, here you go. And that gives me pride. And people tell me, why are you still a sergeant? Well, I like to wear him. I like to be with the troops. Once you become lieutenant up, it's a little bit, you know, I won't even mention what it is, but but be a sergeant, I'm out there with the troops, and I want to be out there with the troops, and I want to train them, and I want to help them and guide them. And if I can make a bunch of those guys go up, move up in the ranks, or become real cops like a few have, that makes me good. Makes me feel good. Makes me feel proud that I had an impact in their life, and they they're moving on. So that's me, you know. Maybe I was a teacher in another life. I don't know. <laughs> But uh, good. getting back to being a comedian, yeah, I, you know, it, like it, it runs in the family. Like I said, I love, I love to make people laugh. I, I go into a room where people don't, don't, uh, don't know me, and I make them laugh. And it's like, oh my god, you know, yesterday I was a, uh, yesterday I went to a wake. A friend of mine who passed away, and I oh, met a I'm bunch so of people there. Yeah, I met a bunch of people there in the funeral home. I'm making people laugh in the funeral home, and uh, one guy even I don't know where the guy seen me, but he told me he knows me from somewhere, and he knew my name, my last name, or part of it. And uh, he shook my hand at the end when we were leaving. And he says, you know, I, uh, I'm honored to meet a celebrity. And that made me feel good, you know. So somewhere out there in cyberspace somewhere, people know me one way or another, whether it be in my MTA uh, segments of um, MTA A-hole segments, which we haven't discussed. And we're yet. definitely going to talk about uh, that. And or my cooking show or being out there just talking. Uh, people know me. And I walk by sometimes and it brings me joy when people – Wave to me, and I don't know who the hell they are. And they say, "Hey, Uncle Jesse." And I'm like, "I was in this. My, I went to a doctor's appointment. These two girls were saying, that's him, that's him.' And I'm like, "Who the hell is this? These two? Said, that's Uncle Jesse." And the other girl saying, "No, he's not." And I'm like, "You know, so people know me. I'm not that famous. I'm not. I don't want to blow wind up my skirt, but do I do? I am noticed out there. Yeah. So, uh, so I know you did a few commercials. <laughs> yeah. So, um. How did you my, my dream? Like... My dream is to become an actor big time on, on TV. Uh, as I've just gotten as far as doing commercials, 
and that that was uh that was great. And uh, but I'm my I still inspire on. I mean, I know I'm not gonna do it like an action movie with uh with these guys, you know, like a true lies kind of movie. But I I want to do a you know I want to do something, be on the show, even in the background. If, uh, if whatever role I play, if I play a hobo in the in the trash can in the background, I'll be I'll be happy. But uh, acting has always been my uh, my dream, and um, I wasted a lot of years. When I should have started out young, I should have went to high school performing arts and blah blah blah, whatever. But I started. There's never, it's never too late to start, right? And I'm I'm getting out there, and I'm just a little bit shy and a little bit timid when it comes to that. And I've had my chance. I get, I actually I get this agency that keeps sending me emails all the time to come in for interview, come interview, and I, I get and then I get nervous and I don't show up. But I, I don't think you'll do great. I, 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 I oh yeah, I, I mean, from what people tell me, I'm a natural, and I, I don't, I don't even know how you know. I don't know how to act. I, I, I just do what I gotta do, and they tell me I'm a, I'm a natural. But I've done some commercials for a company called Quell, which is a, a medical device that that sends uh, electro uh, electrodes into your skin, up to your brain, and then it, your brain uh, lets go of uh, endorphins, which is uh, the body's natural pain relievers and stuff. So I did a, they flew me out to Sarasota, Florida, like a, like a VIP. I was a limo waiting for me in the whole thing. And uh, I spent three days in Florida filming a commercial. I did a commercial on the top of the uh, Freedom Tower uh, for a company called um, Usables or something. Like that. It's, it's people who live with devices that they, they use devices to go through life, whether it be in a heart machine or whatever it is. Uh, I, did, uh, I did a commercial for them They're called Wearables. And I did a commercial for that. And then I did a couple of commercials for that company, Quill. And uh, it was funny because I, you know, seeing myself on TV, oh my God, you know, I, I, I got like, uh, I got really excited. I won't tell you how I get excited, but I got excited. But uh, yeah. Um, but someday you'll see me on TV. Someday you will. I've been someday on the news. I will. Hey. <laughs> so, all right. So, this is the best segment so that I want to talk about. I, I can't right. see it. I so can't see it. So let's talk about the MTA a holes. Oh, right? that's a big one. So for those that don't know, Jesse travels on the MTA trains, and he searches for MTA a holes. He takes pictures of them. So explain to me, how did you come up with the MTA a hole, and what is that to begin with? Well, I, I guess I'm I'm a kind of a neurotic guy, right? And I like things done the right thing, and. Part is one of my bad things about being neurotic. Like things bother me, you know. I let things, little things, bother me. But that's the way I am. I can't change it, right? I guess it runs with my father's like that too. I guess I get it from the old guy. But anyway, uh, you know, there's things that people people have to act like people. You, you, we gotta act. I mean, we we're all in this together. This is one planet, one Earth, one train system, and people have changed throughout the years. People now, of course, I mean, I don't want to offend anybody, but people are selfish nowadays. You know, it's, it's about them, them, and then them, you know? So people get into the subways, they take up two seats. And then sometimes when you say, excuse me, they want to beat you up. They want to, you know, they want to curse you out. It's just, so people are scared. I've seen people take up three seats and nobody dares to talk about anything. So that's not the right thing to do, folks. That really is, it's not, it's not. You pay 275 or whatever, 290 is going up next week. Uh, I always have a saying, one fare, one chair. That's it. One chair, one fare. And that means you pay $275 for one seat. It's not a chair, but you get the idea, right? So 
going in there with bags, you put your purse there, you put your bicycle. I've seen people coming with, with stoves, refrigerators. I'm, I'm telling you, I got pictures to prove it. People coming with uh with dogs and sit them on the seat. I mean, that's not the right thing to do, folks. Come on, be be conscious of your surroundings of your people. We're all in this together. It's selfish. So I started one day taking pictures. I took a picture. I forgot which was my first picture, but I took somebody doing something stupid. Now, I've been attacked because of that. Uh, I. It's not about making fun of people. It's not about uh, making them look stupid. It's about bringing to light something that they're doing wrong in a humorous way. So I, I want to make people laugh, but at the same time realize, yeah, they're doing, you know, they're taking up two seats. That's not the right thing to do. But laugh about it. Okay. So and I don't I don't take pictures of homeless people because unfortunately homeless people they can't help it. You know, they 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 that they live in it, some of them live in a train. So they I don't I would never take pictures of homeless. I do take pictures of regular working people who put their feet up on the on the seat, who who bring their bags, who bring their dogs, and or they spread their legs. And they do all kind of crazy stuff, hang up uh, luggage on top of it. I've seen people on this on the E-train, they have like a rack, and people put up their luggage up there. This is not the this is not the train to the plane. Okay. So that's what it's about. It's called MTA, and of course, it's named after the MTA. The MTA A-hole. I didn't want to call them assholes because they're too offensive. A-hole is close enough. You get the idea. So MTA A-hole. And it started out as a hole of the day. Every day I went out and made a mission to get one picture. And then it started out. You even caught me. You even yeah, caught I, me. I, I caught people. Point. I, I caught a coworker of mine that, that, uh, <laughs> that I thought he was going to beat me up. But hey, you, you were an a hole. You got caught. I called my sister. I called my, I mean, I catch everybody doing it. And I travel. Uh, I haven't been doing it much because my 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 walking is limited now. But I used to go sometimes when they were handling the doing right? The trains up and down. People thought it was crazy. Taking pictures of this stuff. And, uh, and, and the they got to the point people is... were sending me pictures. 99% of the pictures, believe it or not, I take them. But I got me fans now that are coming every day, you know, and they're sending me pictures and stuff like that. And, and then the that... worst part is, like, right now, I'm actually hurt. I actually got hurt on the job. So I've been out of work for, like, three months. So the worst part is when you have a cane, people are I'm taking five seats, and they don't even <laughs> offer to, to, like, give you a seat. I tell you, I'm gonna tell you two stories. I came in, I was gonna go see my doctor with my boot. I had a boot on, one of those big time boots. I look like uh, I'm going skiing and a cane. So there's this lady sitting in the section where it's for handicap. There's a seat on the sixth train and some trains that say to give it up to a disabled person. Now this lady was there sitting down, two story. She's on the phone. So I'm sitting there, I go right next to her. Maybe she get the message and gives me the seat. No, I put the cane, boom, right between her legs. Um, no. Last thing I did was I put the cane on top of the seat. How freaking close can I get to you? And I put the seat like that. She looked, she looked up, she looked at me and just gave playing. At that time, I wanted to wrap the cane around her neck. So what happened, I literally, I have a friend who's a conductor who told me that if you go to the conductor and you tell him that you need a seat, he's, he's obligated to tell somebody, please get up. Can't make them get up. But he tells them, please. So I went to the to the booth when it stopped. I was in the conductor's compartment there. And I told her, I said, listen, I'm handicapped. You know, I got a problem and I need a seat. Now, at that point, I wanted her to get up. But he, of course, didn't get her up. He got somebody else out. Some guy gave me the seat. But that's the way people are. And the second story is I got onto a bus and it was crowded. And I was with a cane and nobody got up. Everybody went to the phone. One guy opened up a magazine. Another guy opened up the New York Times. I took two seats. You know, nobody wanted to give me a seat. And I said, the hell with it, you know. 
And then a lady, a lady said, can somebody please give this gentleman a seat? True story. And one guy says, you you know, he gave me the seat. But you have to beg for it. So, yeah, that, that's selfishness. So, um, I mean, it's tough because, like, I have a button that says uh, not all disabilities are visible. And that's important because a lot of disabilities are not visible. You know, you see me running around, walking around, you don't think I have a disability, but I have a legitimate disability. I have a condition called charcoal foot where my foot collapsed and it's mm. flat and it's bones all over the place. I have pins in my, you know, my whole foot had to be restructured. It's a condition and it's a handicap. And if you see me, you say, there's nothing wrong with this guy. So there's a lot of disabilities I've not seen and that's very important. And I have a button that, I'll show you one of these days in my one another show that says not all disabilities are uh, visible, you know, whether it be a mental illness or physical illness, you, you know, you just don't know. And, you know, so, yeah, so people don't give a F. Yep. Yeah, unbelievable. So, all right. So let's talk about real quick about your, about your cooking show. I know we talked a little bit earlier about it. So, well, um, like, like, um, like I said, like comedy runs in the family, so does chefs. My my uncle was a chef in, in the military, in the Navy. Uh, my father cooks since he was young. Um, my nephew in Virginia cooks. He was also in the military. And uh, a, a lot of the men in the family, my father's cousin, used to cook. And I just picked it up. I just picked it up from watching my mother uh, uh, you know, preparing meats here and there. And I don't know how. I can't even tell you how I started cooking. But at first time I moved to uh, I moved to I moved out of my parents' house to live in Jersey, and I just started cooking. And I can't, like I said, I can't tell you how I started, but I started cooking. And nowadays, you know, all you gotta do is look it up. You know, Google it. In my days, I had to like go to a cookbook or something, or call my mother and say, "How you do this?" You know. So, and I like to experiment with stuff. And I, when I see something, I put you know my little touch to it, and that's how it is. And it's it's grown bigger, and it grew bigger. And during the pandemic, when I was bored, I was out of work for a year and three months. I started doing filming myself cooking and people fell in love with it. And I have a few fans that if if I, if I don't show them the cooking show, they they, they send me texts, they go, what is your cooking show? I have this loyal, this loyal, this lady, loyal, loyal, loyal. She, she says I'm a therapist and she says she has to see my cooking show every day. So even though it's amateur uh, video, people get, you get ideas from it and I, yeah, I enjoy it and I have to do it every day. And no matter how upset I am when I come out of work and anything like that, I have to do my cooking show. And sometimes I don't do that. Today I, I cooked something real, real quick. I didn't want to. But uh, usually you'll find me in the kitchen like a show, Monday to Fridays. So that's where the cooking part comes up. And I and I love cooking. It actually, it's a therapy for me. I come from work. I'm pissed off. I'm tired. I, and I, some people go home and have a drink. I go home and cook. And it relaxes me. And people think I'm crazy. So I can, I can cook and relax. You know why? Because when you enjoy doing something, it's fun. When you do it, because you have to, it's not. You know, that's true. Just like a job. You find a job that you love. You'll never work a day in your life again. Look at that saying. If you ever find a job that you enjoy doing, you'll never work a day in your life because you'll enjoy what you're doing. That's that's, uh, that's from Uncle Jesse. Uh, so, all right. All right. So let's talk. Let's let's talk. Um, one last question. So I know that a lot of. Powerful people have hit you up on social media for your segments that has to do with Chelsea, that area. Um, like what, for those of you that don't know, Chelsea is a neighborhood in Manhattan, correct? 
Yes, it's an up and coming neighborhood. It's one of the oldest neighborhoods in Chelsea. It's a, it was established in the 1700s. And actually, uh, Clement Moore, the guy who wrote Twice the Night, Night Before Christmas, you know that poem? Mm-hmm. He lived in Chelsea. And that, most of that Chelsea in the West Side was farmland owned by Clement Moore. And he wrote that poem that says Twice the Night Before Christmas, went all through the house and blah, 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 blah. Um, so, yeah, he owned. Part a large part of Chelsea. So Chelsea, the boundaries of Chelsea uh, is from 34th Street to 14th Street, from 6th Avenue to 12th Avenue. So, so that whole square, and some people debate it, but that if you Google it, that will tell you where it is. Um, so Chelsea is an up and coming neighborhood nowadays. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of attractions, uh, the, the Hudson Yards, uh, the the High Line. Uh, the meat market district is, is turned into a, a tourist area. When I grew up in it, was a it was a middle class sort of rundown neighborhood. And believe it or not, the gays and I got a, I got attacked for that. But I, somebody came out of my defense. The gays moved in in the eighties to Eighth Avenue from Twenty Third to about Seventeenth Street. And they moved in and they opened up stores and boutiques and all kind of stuff. And the gays actually brought the neighborhood back up, brought it back up. And then now the gays moved. And Eighth Avenue is it's like a it's like a Western town. I passed by it yesterday, and you got to look both ways because it's like a Western. It's a shame. But Chelsea is a coming up and coming neighborhood. Very expensive. Uh, I, I I'm born and raised there. My parents lived there since the uh, since the fifties when my father was in the Korean War, and uh, and I I joined the page. I actually I'm a, I'm a moderator in one of the pages at Chelsea, and I put up pictures of Chelsea and and I do videos of. Past and present, I got a great memory. So I, I do videos with people, some of the people who, oh yeah, I forgot all about that. So I do videos of the neighborhood and I show, talk about the neighborhood and I do uh, videos and people give, have requests and I go to places and I do doors and buildings and stuff like that. So a couple of days ago, well, about a week ago or so, some lady took a picture of 14th Street and 10th Avenue, which is part of Chelsea. And it's changed a lot. The, the neighborhood's changed. Every week I go there, there's a bu- new building put up where, you know, like there wasn't in the night before. Um, but um, she took a picture of 14th Street and 10th Avenue. She got attacked. She got so much attacked that they threw her out of the show, out of the, uh, they threw her out of the, the page. She quit. She quit the page. Uh, she gave it up. And they were criticizing her for not they, telling her that that wasn't 14th Street and 10th Avenue. And that was in New York. And that, that can't be. I lived in Chelsea my whole life. And I made it a point. Let me tell you a story. I took my scooter and I went over there. First of all, I went to report what the hell was going on in Union Square, that ride that had nonsense. And what I do, I hit the curb and I crashed. And I landed on my back. I'm still suffering. I am in the most painful. I got pain you can't imagine. I was out of work for four days. But even through all that, I got up, I got back on my scooter and went down there and did a video, a 20, 20, 25 minute video of the area. I stood in the middle of the street with a tripod and I'm showing the area. I said, ah, people, I'm not in California. And that was when... Is that was when the the riots, the COVID the riots. riots. I was out there. I was out there reporting live. Oh, yeah, man. yeah. I was out there reporting live. I got videos of that too. But anyway, <laughs> that's what I do. Yeah. I I came on in defense of this lady because I don't like. Again, it brings me back to I don't like abuse, and that's one of the reasons it brings me back to being exactly. I don't like abuse. I don't like bullying. Uh, I was sort of bullied when I was younger, and I and I was made fun of for because of who I am, and I hate bullying. So if ever if I could ever stop it. I, I would do anything in my power to stop it. And that's why I went out there and, and I wrote this lady. I don't know her from Jack. I don't know her. She's an old-time neighborhood 
person, but I don't know her. But I send her any uh, a text that says, listen, I'm going to watch my video. I'm going to do a video. She thanked me and everything. She says, I thank you and everything, but I'm leaving the page because I can't. And I don't blame her. But this is what I do. It's all back to doing the right thing. That's what I'm about. That's what Uncle Jesse is about. I don't ask you for anything more, but do the right thing. So where can people find you on social media? Well, if, uh, if, if, in the Chelsea page, I mean, you might not be interested in the Chelsea page, but if you want, uh, it, I, there's a page uh, my in YouTube, my channel. It's called Chelsea in My Heart. And then uh, my cooking channel is Cooking with Uncle Jesse. And then there's another page where I think it's just called Uncle Jesse on YouTube, which has a lot of comedy stunts that I do and, and uh, impersonations and uh, you know, and and uh, I film in my apartment, which that's a different story. Uh, but my apartment looks like a club at, on, on the weekends, and and I put up shows and everything. And I love entertaining people. That's that's it's in me. I love entertaining people. So and of course in my page in Facebook, you'll see me every day with my with my cooking show, and you'll see me putting up crazy stuff and posting stuff. Which sometimes I get a type because the people, some people have logs up their rear end. And you know, don't have it's my saying on Facebook. It's uh, laughter is the best medicine. I'm telling you, laughter can wake up a dead body. I'm telling you, because it's true. When people are down and under, you need a good laugh. You know how many times I've been? I've woken up where I'm depressed. I, I'm to the point I'm crying. And when somebody makes a remark about something that I posted, it brings a smile from ear to ear. And from that day, and then from that time, I, I start to change. And and. It, and I, like I said, I love people. I love people la making people laugh, and it makes gives me joy. That's what gives me. That's what keeps me going. And my fans keep me going. And I love my fans. And I always tell them, I love my fans. I always thank my fans. I always open up my segments with, uh, you know, thanking my friend, family, friends, and fans, because they're the ones who keep me going. And if I, whenever I become more famous on TV, I will always remember my fans because without a fan, you're nobody. You can't put on a comedy show with nobody in the audience, right? Just your mother clapping, you know? Imagine, 350 seats in an auditorium, you saying jokes and your mother's clapping, but she has no choice. She has to clap for her son. But uh, you have to have an audience, and that's what happened. So uh, any last words for any young kid who want to join uh, uh, being a volunteer I, police? Well, uh, uh, I, 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 I can't force, because, you know, police, the, police, the, the police are not that popular, you know, and, and it's not that cool, you know, if you if you hang out with your friends and you're gonna become a you know, exactly, you know, your friends are gonna say, Oh yeah, yeah, popo, you know, kind of you know, you know how that works. But if you really, really want to pursue a law enforcement uh career, whether it be a police officer or, or anything in law enforcement, the best way to start is in the NYPD exhibit program. There's no doubt about it. You 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 loosen up. You get to know the, the lingo and know that stuff like that. And it is a great start. But if you don't want to do that, there's a lot of I I encourage the youths. That's the problem with nowadays. There's not enough programs for youths. You know, when I grew up there, where I lived, there was a there was a community center. There was basketball. There was soccer. There was games. And now they unfortunately because of budget cuts and all that kind of stuff in order but tape. There's no programs for kids, and that's why kids are getting themselves in trouble. And I blame social media also as well. I didn't have social media, you know. So my my first cell phone was one of those Fisher Price. I had the eyes that roll up, and that was my first phone. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jesse, thank you for uh, for being a good guest and joining. And the thank podcast. you for having me. And I thank I, 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 you. Know, thank you for having me.
And like I said, uh, so, uh, whenever you want me to come back on the show, just check in with my secretary, Jane, and make an appointment. <laughs> All right, sir. Jane See happens to be a character. Safe. One thing, Jane has to be, uh, Jane's with me, has been with me for over 30 years, Jane, my secretary, but she doesn't exist as a character I made up. And I always tell people, call Jane my secretary. And I brought her to life. Jane the secretary, so remember that. Jane Folks, the secretary. I love I'll you definitely guys. Hit her up. And, uh, yeah. Hit her up. You'll find her. Uh, www. Uh, call Jane or something. I forget. Anyway, folks, I love you guys. This is Uncle Jesse. Have a great uh, weekend, whatever's left of it. I'm going to go enjoy myself with a couple of drinks and some music and stuff like that. And I love you guys. And I love you for bringing me on the show. Thank you. you. You've been very good to me in the auxiliary program. And, uh, and you've been a good friend when I've been down and out. So I appreciate it. And I'll definitely... Probably have a. I'll probably in the future have a segment where I'll bring you into the show and 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 stuff like that. But thank you sure. again for joining for being Anytime. the first. Just check with Jane uh, first. First ever uh, um, guest in this uh, new podcast. Station I'm honored. Podcast. I'm honored to be the first guest. So thank you so much, sir, and and we'll see you later. Good night. And remember, don't be an a hole on the trains. This is Uncle Jesse. Signing out. Right. Signing out.